There's a couple Sandman cards that I want to read this morning to you. Those blank sheets are Sandman cards. See a need, meet a need. See a need, meet a need. Sandman. A couple of them. Oh, here's one. I think these three came from last week. I wrote in the front seat of two different Lyft rides. I guess Lyft is the opposite of Uber. Or not the opposite of Uber, but same, same thing as Uber. Lyft. L-Y-L-F-T. Rides. In order to socialize with the drivers, both of them turned out to be young men struggling with major decisions. And I was able to talk to them about God and his plans for us. I love it. Another one said, I gave an old car to a friend who needs one for a kid. She's a single mom. Awesome. And the third one is, and I don't know what this meant. It's partly why I'm reading it. Went to the dentist's office. Dentist, no, dentist's office was closed and sad made them laugh. If that was you, get with me after the service. I want to know how you made them laugh. So uh, see a need, meet a need. Here's what I want to ask you to do. We're about to pray for the message. And we're going to need God's supernatural spirit to teach us this morning. And here's why. What we're going to talk about, everybody in the room is going to agree with. Nobody's going to argue. Everybody's going to say, yep, that was right. I agree with that. That's biblical. But this is a really hard truth to put into practice. Everybody's going to say, amen, right on. There's going to be no argument about this today. But we're going to need God's supernatural hand in order for us to follow it. So many hear this message, and so few follow. So we're going to need spiritual ears and a spiritual heart to grasp this passage in Mark chapter 7. Let's bow our heads and pray for the message. Father, uh, we need your hand on this. This is uh, easy to understand and hard to walk in. And so in the next few moments, I pray that not only would, uh, would the Word of God be clear, uh, but I pray that somehow in our hearts you would enter in today on this resurrection day and that you would bring a resurrection to our spirit and to our hearts and to our lives. If there's a dark place in our hearts today, I pray that you would brighten it and that you would come in and do your work. It is in Jesus' name we pray and all the Lord's children said, all right. Here's the deal. I, I don't know. Um, you guys like commercials? I don't like commercials. I strongly dislike commercials. Um, for those of you who are 23 or under, a commercial is... <laughs> a com And let there be light. A commercial is during live TV. Uh, there's this thing that we used to call live TV, that whenever you watch TV, you had to actually... Okay, all right, well, I'm getting <laughs> nods of the head. Like, so we used to have to watch commercials... And I don't, I don't like commercials. Raise your hand if you don't like commercials. They are just annoying. But every now and then, I come across a commercial that I will even rewind and watch again. It is so funny that I will audibly laugh out loud. And there's been a few, have I not, that Chelsea's in another room. I'll, I'll push pause. I'll yell, Chelsea, get in here. you got to see this commercial. you got to see this. And by the way, I don't, the Super Bowl, I don't even care about the Super Bowl. But the best part of the Super Bowl is the Commercials. Doritos have done a pretty good job of their commercials lately. I don't know. They're all clean, so I don't necessarily endorse that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, uh, there has been one commercial that's been going on for about 10 or 12 years, different versions of it. I'm not going to give you the brand or the organization or the business behind it. Some of you are going to recognize it. I would entitle the commercial, The Most Interesting Man in the World. Has anybody else seen the commercial that you would entitle 
the most interesting man in the world. Four hands went up. I'm, I'm going to get five. I'm going to get five laughs today. The rest of you are just, this is going to be a weird piece of uh, stand-up comedy. But it's a man who, who's, who's older in age with the perfect gray beard that every other guy's jealous of. And he's always sitting in a booth in the corner of a restaurant, loosely used there. He always has, he always has two women on both arms, which, anyway... That, that looks good to the rest of the world, but Solomon could tell you today that's not the way to go. Um, <laughs> and he is called the most interesting man in the world. And here, there's always a narrator in the background as he's sitting there with two women on both arms. And usually, sometimes there's three or four. And there's a narrator that says something like this. And, and, I, and I wrote down, I think, eight, one, two, three, eight examples. <clears throat> People hang on his every word, even his prepositions. He is the most interesting man in the world. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. I wondered if it would work. He's been known to cure narcolepsy just by walking into a room. He is the most interesting. Thank you. His organ donation card also lists his beard. His blood smells like cologne. He is the most interesting man in the world. If he were to mail a letter without postage, it would still get there. When it is raining, it is because he is thinking about something sad. Sharks have a week dedicated to him. And my favorite, the last one, he never relies on mistletoe. He is the most interesting man in the world. Now, why do I share that today? Why do I, why do I share that? Anyway... Um, I share that because every week we come here today to talk about truly the most interesting man in the world, who is Jesus Christ. And so we come to Mark chapter 7. What an introduction right there, Bob. Hmm? You proud of that introduction? Yeah, the most interesting man in the world. Mark chapter 7, we enter into the third year of Jesus' ministry, and this is what it says, beginning with verse 1. If you didn't get your Bible reading in this week, you're, you're about to get it in, 23 verses. Here we go. You're going to say, I got it in. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient tradition. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law, of religious law, asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, and then one of the most <laughs> deafening this is actually prophecy from the Old Testament. This is actually a line from the Old Testament. You don't want this said about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, 
And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one, this is only one, this is only one example, guys, among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Then he knocked him upside the head and said, Don't you understand either? He asked, Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food goes, doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the... I just wanted us to say that word out loud today. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. The greatest battle, the largest battle in the history of, of war that we know of happened during World War II. It was called the Battle of Stalingrad. The Battle of Stalingrad. It lasted seven months. One battle, 2.2 million people, soldiers fought in it. 1.8 million people died in the Battle of Stalingrad. They call it the Battle of Battles. It, there's another battle that's going on that is much larger than the Battle of Stalingrad. It's lasted much longer than the Battle of Stalingrad, and it's taken more lives than the Battle of Stalingrad, and it is the Battle of Battles, and the battleground is your heart and my heart. God is after your heart and my heart. Satan is after our hearts, and our heart is the ultimate prize in this cosmic battle. Satan doesn't care if you love God, as long as you love something else just a little bit more. He's fine with you loving God as long as you can knock God to number two. As long as there's something else that goes above God, he's cool with you going to church as long as God isn't number one. There's an interesting statistic. The leading cause of death in the United States is not automobile accidents, it's not drunk driving, it's not drug overdose, it's not cancer, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States of America and has been not only for years but for decades. It's been the leading cause of death for a long time, which means we don't know how to take care of our hearts. Could the same be true spiritually? There's a Reader's Digest article offered a while ago. It had an amusing analysis of some of the dieting trends affecting our culture. I guess the Japanese eat very little fat, and they don't battle heart disease like Americans and British do. The French eat a lot more fat than we do, and they also don't have the heart disease that Americans and British do. Italians drink a lot more red wine than we do, and yet they don't have the heart disease problems that Americans and British do. And so what do we learn from this particular statistic? We learned that you can eat anything you want. Speaking English will kill you. Yeah. 
That's what that means. <laughs> when reading through the scriptures, we find that God is watching the heart. Whether you grew up in church or not, you've probably heard this verse from 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. One of the reasons religious leaders disliked Jesus so much was because he would ignore the outward appearance and he would get to the heart. He would expose their hearts. He says, yeah, you look churchy, you look religious, you look like you're doing everything right on the outside, and you are doing everything right on the outside, but I... People look at the outward appearance. God sees the heart, and Jesus was God, so Jesus saw their hearts. First, in this passage, the religious leaders jumped on Jesus' back for them not washing their hands before they ate. This wasn't a kid's wash your hands before you eat ritual. This was, actually, it had nothing to do with washing your hands because they put very little water in their hands. They would put the water in their hands like this, and then they would lift it up so the water would trickle down to their wrist to make sure it got to their wrist. Then they would hold it back over so it would go back down to the edge of their fingertips. It wasn't, it wasn't washing your hands. It was a religious tradition that they had created extra of the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's not in your Old Testament. You can't find it. Actually, it's there for the priests. Whenever they entered the temple, they were to wash their hands. It was a picture of be clean before God. It was only for the priests, but they took it and started creating rules on top of rules, traditions on, on top of the law, and they would hold it on everybody and say, everybody needs to religiously wash their hands before they eat, and the disciples weren't doing it in verse 6 of Mark chapter 7, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. They're, they're really good at the song service. They're really good at their prayers. They're really good when they talk about God. But their hearts, their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Jesus just calls them out. He says, you want to play this game? Okay, here's what else you're doing. Back then, they didn't have 401Ks. They didn't have the stock market. They didn't have IRAs. The retirement plan for everybody was, if you were a parent, when you got to the point where you couldn't take care of yourself, the retirement plan, by the way, not just in the Bible, but really for, the, for most of the world, they don't have retirement plans. For most of the world, the plan is, when you become older and cannot take care of yourself, your kids take care of you. That's biblical, and it's still practiced in most countries today. The kids take care of the parents when they get to that age and they can't take care of them. Well, what they were doing was they would take this extra money that they had that should have went to taking care of their needy parents and they would, they would buy a field, uh, an 80-acre field, and say, I'm dedicating that to God. And then when mom and dad, when mom and dad couldn't take care of themselves, they said, sorry, I can't take care of you. I used that money for God. Ooh. And they were sidestepping Scripture. They were... <laughs> They were twisting Scripture to, to gain on their own. And then in verse 14, he said, All of you listen, he said, and try to understand it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Why was Jesus always talking about the heart? Here's why. Transformation does not happen from the inside in or, or from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Amen? Real life change starts here. Real change starts in the heart. Several weeks ago, I, uh, I had our two oldest kids in the car with me, and I had my radio station on the same radio station that Jesus would have it if he was driving. That's a classic rock station, 1970s classic rock. 
This is preaching now. The, the Rolling Stones song called Paint It Black. How many of you know Paint It Black? All of God's people, raise your hand. It was on, and, it, and these words stuck out to me. I look inside myself and see my heart is black. I see my red door. I must have painted it black. Maybe then I'll fade away and not have to face the facts. It's not easy facing up when your whole world is black. And my kids are in the back seat with this weird look on their face, like, what kind of music is this? But they weren't saying anything. I just looking at them in the rearview mirror, and I could just sense they were saying in their minds, this is not the kind of Christian music mom plays when she's driving. Oh, be quiet. Good grief. But the line, <laughs> I look inside myself and see my heart is black. You know what happens when your heart is black? Your whole world is black. Everything you see is black. You know what happens when your heart is critical? Every, you find something wrong with everything. You know what happens when your heart is uh, judgmental? Oh, you'll find something to judge on everybody. When your heart is black, everything becomes black. A couple of boys were up to no good. They were wanting to prank their grandpa. Their grandpa was sitting in the living room in his recliner, and he was sleeping. He was taking a nap. He was snoring. So the, the two grandboys took a piece of Limburger cheese, and they wiped it on their mustache, on, on, on the grandpa's mustache while he was sleeping. When the grandpa woke up, he sniffed it, oh, this room stinks. And so he got up and he went to the kitchen just to get away, and oh, this kitchen stinks. And so he went to his bedroom just to get away from the smell, and he sniffed, this room stinks. And so he went outside just to get a fresh a breath, a, a, a breath of fresh air, and he went outside and he took a big, deep breath, and he said, the whole world stinks. <laughs> and what's the moral of the story? Limburger cheese smells really bad. That's the moral of the story. When your heart is black, everything is black. Here's a definition, so we're all working on the same definition of what a heart is. The definition of heart in the Bible is your inner self. It's your thinker, it's your feeler, it's your willer. It's what you're thinking, feeling, and willing. It's, it's, it's your inside. So in 1 Peter 3, when Peter's talking to women, he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your, of your heart, your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is great worth in God's sight. When Jesus was critical of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he calls them several names here. It's one of my favorite passages. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside. It's your heart. It's the inside. They're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup. Five times in this passage, we're going to read the word inside. And then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and, weakness, and, and wickedness. Our hearts represent the inside. It represents the inner self. And so everything comes from the heart. Matthew 5 says adultery starts in the heart. Unfaithfulness starts in the heart. Matthew 5 says murder starts in the heart. Foolishness, did you know this? It doesn't start in your head. Foolishness starts in your heart. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. 
Where did it start? The heart. Jealousy reveals a black heart. In our passage today, Jesus reveals 13 attributes in Mark chapter 7, sinful tactics that start from the heart. In verse 17, it says, Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach then goes into the sewer. And then Mark puts something in parentheses, and Mark almost never does this. He almost never puts a uh, commentary on something Jesus said. The other gospel writers do quite often. Mark doesn't, but he did here. He said, this is the point. He declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And what do we get from that? It was at this moment where we say, praise God for bacon. Put your hands together for bacon. Thank you, God, for bacon and pork steaks and pork sausage. Verse 20, and then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. He's trying to teach his disciples. Year three, for from within, inside, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, and then he lists 13 that come from the heart. Sexual immorality comes from the heart. Theft comes from the heart. Murder comes from the heart. Adultery, it starts in the heart. Greed, it's a heart thing. Wickedness, heart. Deceit, heart. Lustful desires, heart. Envy, heart. Slander, heart problem. Pride, big heart problem. And foolishness. Conversely, good things also come from the heart. Wisdom comes from the heart. You thought that wisdom comes from your brain? The Bible says that wisdom comes from the heart. Proverbs 14, verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. Wisdom rests in the church? Heart. Did you know that courage comes from the heart? Psalm 31, 24, be strong and let your heart take courage all you who wait for the Lord. Saving faith comes from the heart. Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Real change starts in the heart, which is why in our upcoming election, in the 2020 election, and how many of you are, have already heard something about the election, isn't it so positive and it makes you feel all warm when you hear politicians just brag on each other and lift each other up? People say, man, if we would get this president in or we would get that president out or we would change this law or we would have this policy or we would get them in office or we would get them the majority, then our country will change. And the truth of the matter is, until our country is converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no real change. It has to come from the heart. When Jesus was asked out of all the commandments... Out of all the commandments in the law, which one's the greatest? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Starts with the heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Everything we do comes from the heart, even our words. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Even when we tell our boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whoever it is, when we tell them, I love you, we even say this in our words, I love you from the bottom of my heart. Well, we learn this, apparently. We have a bottom of the heart and a top of the heart and a right and a left of the heart. I don't know what we're learning there, but our hearts say it. We even use that. 
when I was a teenager or even before teenage years, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and uh, back then, way back then, <laughs> when we had a crush on someone, not that I ever had a crush on anybody, but when we had a crush on someone and we would tell, we would, we didn't text it to them because there, no, there was no emailing, there was no typing, there was no uh, of any of that, we would take our hands with a pencil or marker, usually it was a pink marker at this moment, unless you're a real man, then you, you're just afraid of it. But you would write, you would write, I, I love you, but how would you write it? You wouldn't write the words, you would draw a heart because the heart said it all. And you wouldn't even write your name, you would write your initials. When you had, if you were next to a big oak tree and you had a pocket knife, and I hope you don't have a pocket knife in here right now, but where I come from, everybody had a pocket knife sitting on them. So when you go up to a tree, you would carve your initials, probably on the tree, because it took a long time, you just carve the first letter of your first name in, and then you would carve the heart in the tree, and then the last letter, and that said it all, didn't it? Nothing else needed to be said. And because you did it on a tree, it lasts forever. This love will last forever, at least three weeks, you know? I never understood the arrow through the heart. Have you ever? doesn't make any sense. Oh, this is extra love because there's an arrow. Wouldn't the arrow hurt? Isn't that a, that didn't make any sense. We were, uh, oh, it's Cupid? I'm 37, just now learning about that. <laughs> See, it all comes from the heart. Cupid, but the arrow through the heart, that hurts. There's probably a story in there. Cupid probably have a story. When we were, I really don't know. When we were, um, we were packing stuff up about a, about a year and a half ago, and we were going through some boxes, and we ran into <clears throat> my seventh grade trapper keeper. <laughs> trapper keeper, baby. <laughs> Are there still trapper keepers? They, they came back. Oh, the Lord is working. So we ran into the trapper keeper, seventh grade year, and I knew it was seventh grade year because of what was written on the front of the trapper keeper. There was white out. That was one of the ways we drew back then. White out, and it was NB heart AW. Well, I knew it was seventh grade because I remember <laughs> I remember who AW was, but it said it all right there. The heart says it all. And so here's what we learned today. What is inside eventually affects the outside. Would you say that out loud with me? What is inside eventually affects the outside. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew real lasting change comes from the inside. Now, I put the word eventually because you can hide for a, a while. If, if you have a black heart today, you can come to church and put on a mask. You can. It's been pulled off before. I've done it before. You can cover for a while, but not forever. What is inside eventually will affect the outside. So if you're strong on the inside, you can withstand the storm of life. A couple years ago, probably five, six years ago, we had a, we had a lady donate her, her hot water heater to the church. And I don't know, I guess she had an extra hot water heater. And she thought if somebody needed a hot water heater in our church, they wouldn't have to buy one. We could donate it to them and it'd be great. And sure enough, after about a month of her donating to the church, there was a, another family that needed a hot water heater. So we stacked it in the back of my white pickup truck and I started to drive to northern Oklahoma, and I'm, I'm driving down rural roads, and we had just had a storm. Oklahoma and Kansas has storms, just, just so you know. And as I'm driving down the rural road, there was a big tree blocking the road, 
it fell down in the middle of the road, and I, I couldn't get to the person's house. The house was another mile away, but I, I couldn't get past. So I got out of my truck, and I realized I cannot move this tree. It's way too heavy. I mean, it's a big tree. And so I started breaking off limbs just to lighten it so that maybe I can just push it halfway off the road to where I could get around it. And as I was sitting there messing with the limbs and the branches, I started to think, why in the world did this big tree fall down? And I was looking down the side of the road, and there's all these, it's, it's a line of trees. There's a lot of other trees that are smaller, wimpier looking, and they didn't fall down. I looked down the road, there's only one tree down. How did the storm knock this one down and not all the other trees? And when I got to the front of the trunk, I looked inside the tree, and there it was. It was deteriorated on the inside. It had rotted. It had been rotting for years. And then it hit me. This, you know, everybody else is going to drive by this, and they're going to say, that storm knocked this tree down. storm didn't knock it down. It had been falling down for years. And the storm is what clinched the deal. The storm is what revealed what was on the inside. But it was rotten. It was deteriorating. It was black on the inside. And when your heart is rotten on the inside and it's hurting and it's unhealthy and it's deteriorating, eventually a storm's going to come and all the other trees are going to stand. But that one tree, it looked good on the outside. It looked strong on the outside. But on the inside, it was hurting. So God knows how important the health of our heart is. Can I give you five quick as we close? I think I can do this in five minutes. I'm going to give you five, one minute per, five health heart pieces of advice that God gives us. I, don't, I didn't come up with things. These are scriptural. Five imperatives that lead to a healthy heart. I can't even tell you. All week I've been excited to share this with you. I ran into this on accident through my study. I just kept going through passages, and I, I ran into five commands from God that leads to a healthy heart. This is, this is good stuff. Here's the first one. Psalm 119, verse 112, he says this, I, in, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Now, time out. Who inclines his heart? I. That's not God's job. That's not your preacher's job. That's not your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife's job. Whose job is that? That's my job. That's a command. To, I incline my heart, and I'm looking for the long haul forever. What does it say? To the end. Real lasting change starts in the heart. Incline indicates a direction. Incline. Which tells me that the psalmist's heart was declined. That he inclined his heart. And the problem with this is I don't think this is a one-time deal. I don't think this is I was 12 years old. I went to a summer Christian camp. On that day, I inclined my heart, and so my heart will be inclined for the rest of my life. I don't think it works that way. I don't think it's a, it's a one-time deal. I don't think it's a yearly deal. I don't even think it's a daily deal. I think it's an hourly deal. There are things in my life that can knock my heart down really quick. Almost on the hour, I have to be intentional on pointing my heart towards heaven. That's my job. I incline my heart, he says. I got to keep doing it all day long. It's the direction your heart is pointing. I'm going to point my heart towards heaven to follow your statutes, your law, your word, all the way to the end. In order to do it, I just keep in, I, my job, incline my heart. Oh. Second one, James 4, verse 8. Come close to God. God. God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And now here's the command. Purify your hearts. 
Your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Whose job is it to purify your heart? That's a command to us. James, brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus says, you purify your heart. Ah, uh, well, how do I do that? He's indicating here, and not only in this passage, but a lot of passages I'm going to skip, uh, an, an impure heart is a divided heart. It's, a, it's an unloyal heart. Your heart's toward God, and it's toward something else. It's, it's divided. Your heart goes two different, uh, two different directions. And he says, get your heart laser focused on God. Purify your hearts. Now, I, I don't speak for God, but I'm going to throw something out. This is opinion. So I'm telling you this isn't scripture. I just think this is opinion. This is my opinion. So, you know, it's probably right. But I think it's possible that God would rather be dealing with a brand new Christian whose life is all messed up and they're still living out the passions of the flesh. They seem uncontrolled and very just living out the passions of the flesh. He'd rather take that kind of a person and direct him toward God rather than take a 35-year-old Christian whose heart is bitter, angry, mean, know-it-all, jerk, dark. Heart is painted black. It says, purify your hearts. And by the way, Psalm 24 says, who may climb the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who gets to. Third one, Philemon chapter, there's only one chapter, but verse 20, there is a line in there that says, refresh my heart in Christ. How many of you sometimes need your heart refreshed? Both my hands go up. Sometimes I need my heart refreshed in Christ. This is on me, I guess. Refresh my heart. Well, the rest of the passage actually tells us how this happens. The entire verse says, in verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Well, who helps you refresh your heart in Christ? The church your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, you mean it's their job. No, it's my job to put myself in position to get my heart refreshed in Christ. It's my job to put myself in a body of believers in a community of fellowship where you are able to refresh my heart in Christ. That's why it's so important to be a part of a church. Number four, Proverbs 23. This one says, keep your heart on the right course. Stay the course. Keep walking the right course. I can physically walk it, but my heart can go left to right. Stay on the right course. Now, here, here's the deal. My heart is easily distracted. How many else? Is, he, is anybody else in here easily distracted? You are, I am the ultimate, oh, I hear everything. I see everything. I try to stay focused uh, when I'm preaching, but just so you know, I see and hear everything. And I, it's so, I, I was the student in class in school growing up. I needed total quiet in the classroom. Otherwise, my reading comprehension stunk like a dirty diaper. I mean, it was bad, bad, bad. I was easily distracted. Now, here, here's the deal. Uh, <laughs> it's so much so that when the toilet flushes and I'm preaching, <laughs> I have to regather myself. <laughs> I, I try to play it off, and I'm thinking, well, maybe you guys don't hear it. But um, so I, I don't care that you go to the bathroom. I just don't want you to flush the toilet. We'll flush afterwards. And all God's people said, you're not with me on this one. Um, turn to the person next to you and say, stop flushing the toilet. Just turn to the person next to you and say, stop flushing the toilet. 
It's distracting your preacher. Um, that was a weird, I wasn't even Australian. And, uh, what'd you learn in church today? Don't flush the toilet. Ah, you know, Paul, Paul kept his heart on the right course. Paul kept his heart. He kept, he, kept, he kept his heart on the right course. That's why he was able to say in the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the course. The original language says course. I have kept the course, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown. There's a reward in store for me. Jesus stayed on course. He stayed on course straight to the cross. When he was telling his disciples, I'm going to die, there's going to be a death, and I'm going to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. You can't die. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I'm staying on course. Wow. Keep your heart on course. Number five, the best for last. It is the best for last. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart. Hmm. For everything you do and everything I do comes from it. This church is nobody else's job but yours. You guard your heart. Well, how do you guard your heart? The word guard in the original language, actually in the Hebrew, if you go all the way back to the Hebrew, it does not mean put up bars. It does not mean put up barbed wire fence. It does not mean any of that. Uh, put it up around you. It actually is referring to a watchman on top of the walls that surrounded cities back then. They would build, a, like Jericho had the big, they had two walls actually, they had big walls around their cities and they thought, well, maybe that will guard us, but they, but they learned very quickly, it's not enough just to have a wall. You need to put a watchman on top of the wall. You need some eyes out there that can see the enemy coming. You need some eyes that can see the danger coming. You need some eyes that can see the impurity coming. You need some eyes that can see the discouragement coming. You need some eyes that can see the jealousy coming. You need to guard your heart because everything you do, everything you do flows from your heart. There's a line in here that, stood, that, that stands out to me. It's the first three words, above all else above all else. That's why it's the best for last. Above all else, guard your heart. Interestingly, and I'm, I'm going to throw out a number here, I'm guessing, there's probably a half a million people in church this morning in Houston, Texas. I think there's about an eight million population in greater Houston. I'm just going to guess, I don't know, 500,000 people are sitting in church. And if we were to put out a poll to all those half a million and ask them, what are the top three spiritual disciplines? What do you think would be written down? Read your Bible. That's, by the way, important. Pray. Okay. Go to church. Yep. Confession of sin. Probably. You can go down the list. You know what would probably not make any lists? Maybe a few lists. I don't know if anybody would write down guard your heart. That's... That's the above all else. That's the above all else. I've got good news and bad news, church. The bad news is we all have a heart problem. <laughs> the Bible says that. Our hearts are deceitful. Hearts can get dark, can't they? Our hearts can get black. That's the bad news. But the good news is God has the power to give you a clean heart. He has the power to do what King David once asked. He said in Psalm 51, after his adultery and his murder, he said, God, create in me a clean 
heart. Wipe the slate clean. Create in me, some of the translations, a pure heart. Give me a new heart. Well, who's the only one that has the power to give you a clean heart? God, and he can do it. Just ask. That's a good request that David gave and that we can give. I'm gonna ask you this morning to do something a little bit different. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. We're gonna read a promise from Ezekiel 36 that has to do with the heart. And you say, well, I'm, I'm tired of having a bad heart. I'm tired of having evil thoughts. I'm tired of being jealous. I'm tired of being bitter. I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of, of, of battling whatever it is that I'm battling. I'm tired of the inward struggle. It starts on the inside, by the way. It's the heart. Well, look at this promise from Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Let's everybody read it out loud together and read it so that all the other schools can hear it as well. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Aren't you grateful for that promise? God can do it. God can do it. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God.